My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, uh, thanks for bringing the church into this building uh, this morning. Speaking of the church, we're going to dive into a series on the church uh, this morning. Uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to hit the pause button on our series through the book of Hebrews. So if you've been around throughout the course of the fall of 2017 and you've been walking with us chapter by chapter through the book of Hebrews, rest assured we will finish up that book of the Bible. Uh, we are not uh, going to ignore the final few chapters of Hebrews. We'll get back around to that the first Sunday in February, but we're going to hit the pause button for the next four weeks uh, as we dive into the new year to try to start the year off right with a sermon series on the church. And, and I want to begin right out of the gate with a question for all of us in this room. And that question is very simple. It's this. When you think of the church, what comes to mind? How would you define the church? What, what is your perception of the church? What is the church supposed to be about? We're, we're going to go after some of those questions over the course of the next four weeks. And whatever we don't cover is going to be free game in a time of Q&A that we're going to have in subsequent weeks of this series as we gather in this place. I'll explain more about that uh, in just a few minutes. But uh, let me just do this. Let me go ahead and start things off by laying my cards on the table. I don't think I'm going to say anything novel over the course of this series. So if you're coming in looking for new information, you're probably not gonna get it over the course of the month of January. Much of what I'm gonna say this morning and in the weeks to come is stuff that you probably already know. You've probably already read it. You probably already heard it in a sermon. We're gonna talk about what makes the church the church. Um, we're gonna talk about the various pictures that the Bible uses to describe to us what the church is like. We're gonna talk about the God-instituted purposes for which the church exists. We're going to talk about the different activities within the life of the church that are a means of God's grace to us. Um, this very sermon this morning is actually a repackaging of two sermons that I preached before. One that I preached back in 2015 and one that I preached back in 2013 while my family and I were still living in central Florida. Most of what we're going to talk about over the course of the next four weeks Many of you have already heard. Maybe not packaged the exact same way, but none of the truths that we're going to sit with throughout the course of this series, you could say, are hot off the press. That doesn't mean that uh, you should feel embarrassed if you have a theological epiphany along the way. Praise God for every theological light bulb that goes off by his grace in our lives. But what I'm simply trying to say is this. My goal over the course of the next four weeks is to do everything that I can to not reinvent the doctrine of the church. Assuming theological truths, I've said this before, is one step toward abandoning theological truths. And so I'm going to take the risk of boring you over the course of the next four weeks in the name of sound doctrine. But I do want you to ask yourself a question, and not just once, but over and over again over the course of, of the next several weeks. And the question is this, is my heart captured by the things that I readily embrace as theologically true, particularly as it pertains to the church? Is my heart captured by these things that I readily embrace as theologically true? It's one thing to assent to various Christian doctrines, intellectually speaking. It's an altogether different thing to have those very same doctrines capture your heart. And so, so my hope for this series is simple. I hope that your heart is captured in the coming weeks. And, and not by novel truth propositions, but by age-old truths that come to life for maybe the first time or the hundredth time, maybe even the thousandth time. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to a couple of different places this morning. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. I know if you were thinking of two verses to put together in the Bible, those would be the two that you would throw together like peanut butter and jelly, like Donnie and Marie. 
but you will see, I promise, how it all comes together in the coming moments that we have together. Revelation 13.8, you can go ahead and open there and maybe put a bookmark on Ephesians 3.10. We'll get there soon enough. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passages. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you as the churches give to you. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump in and, and get to work. God, we desperately need you. We find ourselves in a context that arguably is hyper-churched and under-gospel. We are so familiar, many of us, with this concept of the church that uh, things that are meant to capture our heart as it pertains to the church have become stale uh, and, and our hearts have become slumbered. And so I pray that you would reinvigorate us with a passion for you, Jesus, for your church, who you spilled your blood for. Pray that you would awaken our hearts to the beauty and wonder of the story that we're caught up in, that you would help us to see our place, our role in this story this morning, and that we would walk away changed, and that, God, you would get great glory uh, in, in the wake of our response to everything that we're going to look at this morning and in the weeks to come, and that the joy would be ours for the taking. Holy Spirit, would you move? Uh, without you, we are hopeless this morning. And so we, we plead with you to awaken us in the moments to come. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So here's the deal. My goal this morning, incredibly simple. I'm going to lay it out for you up on the screen behind me. As, as somewhat of a thesis statement. My goal this morning is this. It's to make plain that you and I have an incredibly meaningful part to play in a very small chapter of a very big story of redemption that God planned before the foundation of the world. Let me say that again because that's a really long sentence. My goal this morning is to make plain that you and I have an incredibly meaningful part to play in a very small chapter of a very big story of redemption that God planned before time began. That you and I are part of a real life fairy tale, an epic adventure, a rescue story for the ages, the likes of which the greatest fiction writer that's ever existed couldn't possibly put on paper. You're, you're standing on the stage of human history right now as we speak with stage lighting hanging from the cosmos. You, you might say, epic adventure, are you kidding me? My life is about as boring as watching paint dry. I read fiction novels, I go to the movie to escape my boring life. Maybe that's what you bring into this place this morning. And if that's you, I would say this, did you know that, that guys like C.S. Lewis did not write fiction novels in order to help us escape to another world? Guys like Lewis wrote fiction novels in order to help people better understand this world. As Indy Wilson, one of my favorite writers, once said, he said, you and I, we're on a rock, mostly molten lava, flying through outer space at about Mach 86. And we're doing this like a yo-yo being swung around a ball of fire in the sky. That's our setting. What kind of story are we telling? We're immediately in the sci-fi fantasy section of the bookstore, embarrassed, hoping that none of our really academic friends will see us. 
That's this world, he says. It's a fantasy world. It's a crazy fantasy world. This is a world in which a man once walked on water, in which bread came from heaven, in which bread always comes from heaven, in which we're still held by God, rocketing around a ball of fire in the sky. This is our world. The world is wonderful. It is fantasy. It's not realism, as we would call it, and we need to get our eyes open and be more childlike. For, for those of us who come into this place this morning and maybe have lost our sense of wonder, welcome to the greatest story the world has ever known, and you're a part of it, and so am I. A story that God determined would be written before the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. The Apostle John says, All who dwell on earth will worship it, that is the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. This is one of the most mind-boggling verses in, in all of Scripture. We, we touched on it a few weeks ago in our Hebrew series. We've actually touched on it a couple of times in the past couple of years. What the Apostle John is essentially saying is this in this verse. Before there was any sin to die for, God planned that his son would die for sinners. The Apostle John is telling us that there was a book that existed before the foundation of the world, before any of the cosmic grandeur that you read about in Genesis chapter 1 ever came into being. And that book was known as the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. He's talking about Jesus there. Let this blow your mind. According to Revelation 13, 8, Christian, your name was in that book before God created the heavens and the earth. Before time began, the death of Jesus was the plan, which means that the church was the plan. Once the clock of the universe started ticking, everything was looking forward to that moment in human history when Jesus would spill his blood to purchase a bride for himself. That's why the entire Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. That's why uh, since the death of Jesus, everything has looked back to that moment as the apex of human history so that the cross is the centerpiece of the glory of God revealing his grace, which will be praised for eternity by his people. This is not a small story that you and I are part of. This story is bigger than the cosmos. This story is bigger than time. You and I are, are a part of a real-life epic novel, you might say. A couple of questions that beg to be answered. Why? Why are you and I a part of the story in the first place? How do we fit into the story? There's a lot at stake in getting answers to those philosophical questions right. Why are we part of the story? Why do we exist? As question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief aim of man? And the answer to that question, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you and I exist, plain and simple. I think John Piper did a great job of refining that statement uh, to say that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, that the two cannot be separated, that as we enjoy God, he is most glorified in us, that they are inextricably connected, God's glory and our joy, that, that you and I exist as part of this rescue story for the ages in order that we might spend our lives for the glory of God. That's what we were designed for from the beginning. Now here's the dagger to the human ego. What that means is that the story that you and I find ourselves in is not ultimately about us. 
It's not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. This story is ultimately about God. In fact, the Bible teaches from cover to cover that God is ultimately about God. It's what theologians refer to as the God-centeredness of God. The, the ultimate aim of God, you could say, is no different than the ultimate aim of man. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. And I submit to you that if that were not the ultimate aim of God, then God would not be God. He would be an idolater. Think about it. If God ultimately enjoys, if God ultimately glorifies, if God ultimately delights in anyone or anything other than himself, then that person or that thing that God ultimately enjoys, that God ultimately glorifies, that God ultimately delights in, that thing or that person is God. If God makes anyone or anything other than himself the center of it all, including you, including me, whoever or whatever it is that he makes the center functions as God. And if that person or that thing looks beyond himself or herself or itself to something else, you just keep following that trail of breadcrumbs until you get to someone or something that finally says, I can't go any further. I'm the most glorious. I'm the most preeminent. I'm the most supreme being in all the universe. When you get there, you found God. You finally found him. That God would say, I, I must supremely glorify and enjoy myself is actually an argument for his deity. Everything in this story Every stroke of the pen, you might say, is about God's glory. We see it tattooed all over the pages of Scripture. Going back to the Old Testament, we're told that God called Israel as a people for his glory. Isaiah 49.3, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. God rescued Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt, the story of the Exodus for his glory. Psalm 106 our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he, God, saved them. Why? For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God spared Israel in the, the wilderness as they rebelled against him for his glory. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness, God says. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, which by, uh, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. God gave Israel the promised land, the land of Canaan, for the glory of his name, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. God restored Israel from Babylonian exile for the glory of his name. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. If you move on to the New Testament, you see more of the same. 
1 Corinthians 10, 31, God instructs us to do everything for his glory. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God tells us to serve in a way that brings him glory. 1 Peter 4, 11, whoever serves, let that person do so as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Maybe a more familiar verse, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is coming again, his second coming, to be glorified. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, those who are not followers of Jesus, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he, Jesus, comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Thinking ahead to the new heaven and earth, in the new Jerusalem, the glory of God will replace the sun. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. The the centerpiece of God's story, which we're wrapped up in, caught up in, the centerpiece of that story is God. Talk about a dagger to the human ego. You're like, man, why are we starting a series on the church with this? because I think we've got to get our place in the story right. We've got to understand the role that the church has to play in this cosmic story that we're caught up in. If it's true that the story is ultimately about God, that he is the main character, it means that everything in the universe does not revolve around you or me. That's such a hard pill to swallow that many resort to character jabs at God. God must be incredibly needy. He must be incredibly insecure, like some sad, pathetic social media addict clawing for a like or a retweet or something. Is that true? Is God incredibly insecure? Is he in need of validation from us? Not according to the scriptures. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, the The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Psalm chapter 50, verses 10 through 12 say it this way. Every beast, God says, every beast of the forest is mine, cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. God is, he's not some needy being fishing for compliments. To be about his, his own self-glorification doesn't make God insecure. It doesn't make him needy. It doesn't make him weak. Again, it actually authenticates his deity. Okay, so, so God's not needy or insecure, but it doesn't make God sound very loving to be about his own self-glorification, does it? I mean, after all, being... Uh, enamored with with oneself is not typically a character attribute that we get excited about when we see it in other people, do we? Love seeks not its own, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. How can God be loving if his ultimate aim is to be exalted? Another way to ask it, how can God be for you if he is ultimately for himself? Well, think about it in terms of praise. We've talked about this before as a church. We, We talked about it back in the Psalm series last summer. The heart sings of that in which it delights. That which we love, we must praise. Many of you have seen this quote before. C.S. Lewis, Reflections on the Psalms. So helpful to me in my understanding of this. He says, The world rings with praise, 
Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes. Dishes? That's weird. I think he means foods, right? Actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. That is weird. Even sometimes politicians and scholars. He goes on to say, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete, Lewis says, until it is expressed. Right? How miserable it would be to go see your, your favorite band or artist and not be able to sing along in the midst of the show. How miserable to go see your favorite sports team play and not be able to cheer when they score. There's joy in the expressing of our delight, so much so that if we don't express ourselves, Lewis says, our joy is left incomplete. And so if you, if you take that and you think about that as it pertains to God, how unloving of God it would be to deny us the praising of the object of greatest beauty and delight in all of the universe. What is that object? God. Thus, it's unbelieving unbelievably loving for God to make it his aim to receive our praises, that it's in our praising of him that that our greatest joy is actually made complete, that God's character is not at all compromised by his God-centeredness. He's in a relentless pursuit of his own glory, and that's actually good news for us, that you and I were not created for the empty chase of self-exaltation. We were created to bask in something greater than us, which is why, I've said this before, none of us goes to the beach, stares out on that vast expanse of ocean, and says, wow, I am quite spectacular. Right? We don't do that. We love to be surrounded by grandeur, and not because it makes us feel big, rather because it overwhelms us. It makes us feel quite small. We were created to be overwhelmed with a big God, a splendid God, a glorious God. As I've said before, as we consider our role in this unbelievably big story that God planned before time began, we desperately need a Copernican revolution. What is that? In 1543, Nicholas Copernicus presented an idea that revolutionized our understanding of the universe. Before Copernicus, it was believed that planet Earth was the stationary, non-moving center of everything. It was believed that the sun and all the other planets orbited around planet Earth. Not not the craziest notion, right? Our planet's the one with life on it, so it kind of makes sense that we would see ourselves as the center of everything. Copernicus argued, no, uh, it's... It's not planet Earth that sits at the center of the solar system. It's actually the sun. And and planet Earth, along with all the other planets, revolves around the sun in orbit. Most people on planet Earth, I've said this before in this setting, including many in the church, desperately need a Copernican revolution. So easy to get caught up in thinking that the world revolves around us, that the starring role in this epic adventure is ours that human history has been waiting for us to make our grand entrance onto the stage, and hey, we're finally here, so this must be the main chapter in in all of history. Nothing could be further from the truth. From the very beginning, you and I, we weren't designed to be the center. Part of what it means to be the church is to let go of the empty chase of self-exaltation. You could say it this way, to embrace our supporting cast role. Very few things are, are more humbling 
to think about than the reality that our moment in human history is not even really a chapter. It doesn't even qualify as a chapter. It's more like a paragraph. You ever thought about that? This story that God is authoring is meant to to humble us. None of us gets the role of the hero in this divine, redemptive historical drama. That role is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. But, this is a, a big turning point in this morning's sermon, but lest we think that our role in this story is meaningless, turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. An absolutely remarkable passage of Scripture as it pertains to understanding the role of the church in this rescue story for the ages. In Ephesians chapter 3, as you're turning there, let me just set it up. The Apostle Paul is explaining that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for both Jew and Gentile alike. And he explains that his particular calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles is a gift of God's grace given to the the most unworthy of men. If you know Paul's story, a former persecutor of the church, killer of Christians. In verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul says something pretty astonishing. It's in verse 10 that we're given the purpose of God's grace in Paul's life. Paul says, I was called to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let me just unpack that. The word manifold in the original Greek literally means many colored or of diverse colors or motley. For those of us who are around in the 80s, immediately the the hair band, Motley Crue, comes to mind, right? That band, did you know, that band's name was derived from the idea that a diverse group of misfits had come together to make music with one another. Does that not sound like the church? A diverse group of misfits reconciled to God and one another through the cross of Jesus Christ who seek to live lives that sing of the praise of God's glorious grace. That's you, that's me if you are a Christian. Like the Apostle Paul, if you go back and you read Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 leading up to chapter 3 verse 10, you you see this reality that you and I were dead in our trespasses. We were children of wrath, separated from Christ, sinners by nature and choice, strangers to the covenants of promise, Hopeless and without God, Paul says. And we couldn't do anything to save ourselves from that hopeless situation. Dead people don't raise themselves from the dead. But God, here's the gospel. You see it in the middle of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy and grace and love, sent a rescuer. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, entered into this rescue story for the ages as a character. Unbelievable. Lived the sinless life we could never live. Died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. Without the shed blood of Jesus, there would be no church. There would be no series on the church for the month of January. What an incredible rescue story. For one this morning, as we open up this series on the church, we're meant to marvel at the salvation that's ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I invite you to trust in him as Savior, as Lord, as treasure. I invite you to become the church this morning. It's through the church, Paul says, that the many-colored wisdom of God is made known. John Piper unpacks Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 this way. He says, God's canvas is huge. 
It's the size of the created universe. And God is painting with thousands and thousands of colors and shades and textures. A picture as big as the universe and as old as creation and as lasting as eternity. A picture we call history. With the central drama being the preparation, salvation, and formation of the church of Jesus Christ. And he is using thousands of different brushes, most of them very ordinary and very small because every minute detail is crucial in this painting to display the wisdom of the painter. In other words, as you think about your role to play in God's great story, think of it this way. You are a metaphorical brush that God is using to add gospel color to the canvas of human history. Let me say that again. You are a metaphorical brush that God is using to add gospel color to the canvas of human history. That's unbelievable. In order that the world might know the many-colored wisdom of God. That's the church. In keeping with the metaphor, does anyone ever say, wow, what an amazing painting. The artist must have used some really incredible brushes to make that one. Of course not. It's true that the brushes are no doubt used as instruments to help create the work of art, but the focus is ultimately always on the beauty of the painting itself and the excellencies of the artist who created it. That's the idea here in Ephesians 3.10. The artist gets the glory, the brushes get the joy. And here's perhaps the most astounding part of Ephesians 3.10. Who's the audience in that verse? For whom are we putting the manifold wisdom of God on display? Yes, other human, be- human beings for sure. Jesus was sent and so we are sent to put the wisdom of God on display for a world that desperately needs God. Make no mistake about that. But look again at verse 10. Paul says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. If, if ever you've wondered whether or not you have a purpose in life that's bigger than you, here it is. Your audience, church, is angelic. Both good and fallen angels are peering in to look at this canvas that God is creating through you, the church. The good angels, they've never sinned. They've never been redeemed by God's grace. And so this canvas is as close as they'll ever get to understanding the grace of God. We, the church, we get to put God's wisdom revealed in his grace toward a motley crew of human beings like you and me on display for sinless angels to marvel at. And the fallen angels are forced to look at this canvas, a canvas that appeared lifeless and dark, and watch as God makes his triumph known over them with every brushstroke of gospel color. Harold Ockinga, old Boston pastor, says it this way. He says, God created this lower order of beings subject to temptation and then to sin, which resulted in the material ruin of the race, in order that he might give the hierarchies of beings in this universe an object lesson in what omnipotent love can do with even such ruined creatures. He decreed in eternity that by means of the church, he would show forth his perfection in the eternal ages to come. That's mind-blowing. If we really understood everything that Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 and everything that Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 is saying, it would revolutionize our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. 
that you and I, we have an incredibly meaningful part to play in a very small paragraph of a very big story of redemption that God planned before time began. If that's true, and you've got to wrestle with whether or not you believe that to be true in the first place, but if that's true, and if that truth captures our hearts, it's the key, we will find ourselves freed from two things, and we can actually function as the church was meant to function. Number one, we will be freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation because this whole thing is ultimately about God. He's the main character in his own story. We'll be freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation. And secondly, we will find ourselves freed from apathy towards Jesus and the church because we have a meaningful, meaningful role to play in this rescue story for the ages. By God's grace, you and I get the privilege and honor of participating in the greatest story ever told. In the coming weeks, we're going to spend some time taking a deeper look at what it means to be the church This morning was high altitude. We're gonna kind of ground this thing and talk about what it looks like to live this thing out. And I hope that it draws you in and not just draws you in, but I hope that it captures your heart. I hope that you walk away going, I've never thought about the church that way and I find myself changed by it for the glory of God and for my own joy.